The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. This week we saw one team go down to 11 men. The RFU gave out 28 professional contracts and the prospect of the Premiership scrapping relegation returned to the headlines. Here to discuss it all is the former Springbok, Worcester Warriors and Gloucester fullback Tina Delport. Hello, Tina Delport. Happy New Year to you. How are you? Fuerspurig in the VR, Mr. Excellent. I had no idea what it meant. Could have been insulting me royally, but let's hope not. Look, promotion relegation, this has reared its head again. Funnily enough, Premiership rugby head is... The former uh, supremo of the RFU, Ian Ritchie. I know Ian Ritchie quite well. He's uh, a very good administrator. It's a good appointment by Premiership Rugby. He's basically saying, look, uh, there isn't a rift between us at the moment. We've not really started the conversations or, in fact, finalised our views on promotion and relegation. But uh, let's be clear, there's an eight-year deal, but I'm sure that um, that will be a movable feast if they do happen to get their act together in the premiership and agree what they want to do. I mean, I have heard so many people, especially general sports commentators, say you can't do this, look at football, seamless transition, blah, 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 blah. And I simply say to them, you've got to remember, if you're a football-based sports journalist, that you have the richest game in the world, that hoovers seven-eighths of all the column inches, the media footage, money, and everything else. You don't actually know what it's like to be a minor sport and to be grappling for not only the handful of youngsters that now actually want to play sport, but you know the crowds and so on, because you don't have to try anywhere near. And the reality is in the English game, there is not enough money and there is not enough English talent to actually populate two professional, not even, well, hardly one professional league. And I simply say this. I wouldn't be in favour of locking the door forever. I mean, that would be wrong. It would stifle ambition. But if you open the relegation and promotion, I don't know, an agreed period, whether it's two years, three years, four years, I don't know, that would give both the teams in the top league and the championship the prospect of working towards a defined goal, say, every three years. At the moment, what they have is a scrap every single year, either to go up or not go down. And of course, they don't take a chance on an 18-year-old and play him for three years and so on. They buy someone, probably from abroad, who has got the experience and can play and achieve at the required level straight away because that's the immediate need. It, this way around, you wouldn't stifle ambition, but you would at least have some sanity and some orderly progress. What, what do you think, Tinas? No, I totally agree with you, Brian. I think it's... You look have to look at the business model. If you, if there isn't security in sense of we know that we are going to be playing Premiership Rugby next year, um, you do have the challenge of finding suitable sponsors. You, you look at recruitment. You do potential recruitment of younger players, developing players, overseas-based players, and until until you know that you are going up, being promoted or being relegated, all of these things are put on hold. Yes, of course, it makes for fantastic television, and I'm sure the broadcasters love um, the old promotion relegation battle. But all those points you made are, you know, certainly carries a lot of substance. I personally played at Worcester for three of the four seasons I was playing at Worcester. We were um, getting relegated. Um, you know, at Christmas time, 
if you don't have enough points, then you know it's going to be a battle and a and a very tough battle for the remaining remainder of the season. And everything else changes the amount of pressure that's put on you, the willingness of play, uh, of coaches to to trial younger players coming through, developing them, or sticking sticking with the old heads and and really just tapping as much as you can out of a very small squad uh, for the remainder of the season. Yes, we were lucky that we stayed up for all of those four seasons when I was playing, but it did put a lot of pressure, not just on the players, but also um, around the business. So expanding it, for sure, I think if you realistically look at which clubs in the championship can really afford to go up because there's a massive... Two of them, maybe three. Maybe, maybe three. Um, I know the, the RFU will probably strategically will look to have more sides up north, whether you combine a Leeds, Rotherham, Doncaster, make a combined regional side, you know, whether it's Ealing, depending on, on the finances. But there's two, maybe three. You, you, you'll include London Irish on there because they um, one of the original premiership teams. There isn't a lot of depth below that. And do we then create an environment where we can develop the academies, can build these businesses for two, three years, and then look at it um, again and say, right, these guys have been able to step up. They haven't. Is there someone else that's now coming through, that's done through the development path, path um, and then that can fill in that spot? But it's difficult. I've played for a team that, that is now in the premiership that benefited from the promotion relegation system. But realistically, how many of those teams but are the still thing there? Is it wouldn't be, you know, say if Worcester were in the championship, it wouldn't be locked to them forever. Take the example of my old club, Nottingham. They are one of the clubs that do not really want to come up. Because they know that even in the Premiership, their owners would just have to be subsidising because they would not get the crowds. They never have been. They weren't able to do. I mean, Forest, who are in the, in the football championship, their average gate is about 22,000, and that's in, the, in, the, in football. You know, it's a completely spurious argument you know, to look across at football and say it works there. But, and I just say this. You don't have promotion and relegation in the Pro 14 or the Super Rugby. The standard of rugby there has got better. So it's, you know, you, you can't say that it, it, it materially affects the way in which talent is developed. No, I think if, you know, playing rugby and Super Rugby, you even if you are at the bottom of, of, of the log, you... You don't have that pressure that you are going to get relegated. You know next year there's an opportunity to be there again. You can, you give that year the opportunity for players to develop, get that experience at that high level, and next year you move on. Um, when I was down at the Cats or you know the Lions, the Cats, we had two terrible years. The following year, because that group has mainly been there together, we we ended up playing Super Rugby semi-finals for for two years on the bounce. So. You do have that opportunity. The guys still go out and play the style of rugby they want to play, uh, and they're not necessarily being pushed into playing a negative style of uh, of rugby to just force a win to get the points. Yeah. So it's it's all that pressure that's been taken off, and you can still go out there and express yourself and try and play an expansive and attractive brand of rugby. I mean, in the end, if both sides were far thinking, and I don't know what the figures would be, and and the the investment from the equity capital people who've come in is going to actually make this more difficult. But the RFU, like the WRU, what they should really be looking at is to say, right, we will borrow a lot of money and we will give the club owners their money back. Say, thank you very much, you've done that. You know, Here is some compensation. We will take over this now. Uh, we'll look for partners. 
minority partners, 49 or 50% partners. But we will control this now. Uh, we'll order it in a way we want to that's advantageous towards England. That will mean we can have central contracts, like Ireland, like everyone else, and we can look after our players better. It's all about player management. You, you, you rightly mentioned Ireland there. You, you look at how much rugby these top players actually play rugby. You know, they get a lot of break time. They get a lot of rest when the Pro 14 is being played. But they have the luxury because of the size of the squads in Ireland. They're not necessarily, uh, you know, the demands of the owners aren't necessarily there because it's not owned by owners. And, and that's what the owners want is, is the performance for the club because that means... There's more people coming through the gate. There's more. It, it drives the commerciality of, of well, the club. You, you tell me when people are talking about this would be the death of rugby. The what about how do you count for Leinster then? You know, Leinster are probably as good as nearly any tier two international team. They 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 fantastic, but and their crowds at the Aviva are huge. Oh, so they are, they are huge, and it's creating role models for young players to aspire to. They want to be. Um, those players playing for Leicester, they want to pull on a, a Leicester shirt. They want to be part of the of the Leicester development program because you've this got is Len, a they've, they've just Ireland just wiped the World Rugby Awards. Sexton, Leinster, and Ireland, Josh Schmidt, and so on. They play with no relegation, so you can't tell me it doesn't work. No, it 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 does work. I mean, that's you know, the Pro Fourteen shows it. Um, Super Rugby shows it. It, it, it takes off that pressure in terms of performing, in terms of self-doubt as a player, because you have to perform because your career, your, your income is sort of dependent on it. Go out there, go express yourself. If it happens on the field, it will happen on the wider aspects of the business. People, people want to be associated with a successful club, a club that's winning. Yes, and of course, not every club can be, can be winners, but it is so much easier if you do not have that pressure on having to sell commercial space for corporate hospitality. All of those things comes easier if the side is performing and they're playing in the premiership and you've got that security that over the next three, four, five years you can build your your business model and you know you can develop that. You could potentially develop your stadium a little bit more or, or you know, whatever is around your training facilities. Well, whatever it is, you can do it in a planned fashion. Exactly. exactly. I mean, the, the, see the other side of the argument, this is what uh, always gets me is the proponents of, of the, you know, the argument this shouldn't happen. They just talk in platitudes like it is wrong, you know, emotionally, theoretically, romantically, not to have a seamless game top to bottom. They don't actually ever account for the realities that are in rugby. As I say, football is not the right example because it is such a gibberish game. It has so much money that the lessons to be learned from that are nonsense. And then, as we say, we've looked at two models, the Super Rugby and the Pro 14, that is producing not only brilliant franchises or teams, provinces, whatever you want to call them, like Leinster, like Munster, like all the big uh, New Zealand uh, provinces, like the top South African ones. Australia's going through a bit of a, a hiatus at the moment. And you look at the international players and the quality of those. So you can't tell me that these systems don't work. And I'd just like those people who are on the other side of the argument to actually stick to the reality and explain why you couldn't do this and why it is harmful. And not just on the basis of, well, if you stifle ambition, well, it doesn't, yeah, fine theoretically, but it doesn't actually match what is there. No, I don't think it stifles ambition at all. It's, 
if you look at what you require now to go up, go up to the Premiership, you look at the London Welsh um, episode two seasons ago, it is such a different financially worlds apart from playing in the Championship. You mentioned Nottingham earlier. Do they really want to go up? No, they don't. They don't because it brings so much more financial pressure and everything else to the club. Do it for two, three years. Reassess. Is there another club that's that's really knocking on the door? And then find See, a solution. See, what they're afraid of is this. They actually fluke going up. They battle for a year, but actually effectively it destroys the club's infrastructure. And if they go straight back down, they might drop a long way. Whereas if they had two or three years to build, they might even get themselves into position if they did go up. Even if they came down after two or three years, they'd have a structure which was sustainable and might be able to mount another challenge. Anyway, this one is going to run and run. Why don't we talk about uh, one of your old teams who were involved in a quite remarkable game at the weekend. They grabbed a winning converted Trident Wusper in the 99th minute. Now, it was against a side which our next guest graced, well, not only gracefully, but successfully. It's a former Lions, England and Bath fullback, regular contributor to this podcast. Hello, Matt Perry. Hi, Brian. Hi, Tina. How are you? Hey, Pizza. 11 men on the field at one point. I've never... I was looking back, I can't remember this. Can you ever? 11 men? No, certainly not 11. I think I've played in a game where there were 12, 13 or 12, but 11 is, uh, is certainly a new record. Matt, what, what, what did you make of all these things? Well, firstly, I think Bath, with the points they were up, you know, the first half and then to kind of capitulate in that second half of the game is a mark of where they are, I think. The scrum was under significant pressure towards the latter part of the game and... Just the discipline and the capability they had, the players going off and uh, coming on and, you know, safety, the ref. I thought Bath were pretty lucky not to concede a penalty try a lot sooner. What do it, you was, make? it was quite a bizarre game. Really. It was bizarre, wasn't it? What do you make when people like Zach Mercer, who's a leading light, he's, he's only young, but, you know, he's one of the potential stars, well, he's definitely one of the stars of the future, admitting to not really knowing the laws at one one yeah. stage. I, I, this is a pro game. It's your job. Surely you should know the laws. Yeah, I mean, it's an education piece, isn't it? Yeah. Um, we could talk about the wider perspective on where where Bath currently are, but we have to look at the leading lights of, you know, the likes of Saracen, the likes of Exeter at the moment, which I think in the modern day game of rugby, a lot of teams play very similar. You know, strong set piece. Uh, they've got systems, structures in place. They keep teams that keep the ball well, they're disciplined, they're educated, they kind of bring thought leadership to the game and know the laws, firstly. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the teams that are getting, you know, there's becoming a massive gap. And so, I mean, as a professional player, you should know. And it goes back to the old the old days of Clive Wilbur, doesn't it? Scenario planning. I mean, you've got a scenario plan now, situations that these things are going to happen. Yeah. And it's not, it's an excuse to not know um, the laws. As a player who's on the pitch performing for a great club like Bath, um, yeah, it's not acceptable. Matt, we've, we've talked about this before, but in Todd Blackadder, you've got the sort of person, you know, knowing where he came from, knowing what, what he did, who, in his playing career, would not have and, and didn't produce the sort of inconsistencies that are now being witnessed 
you know, with his squad. I don't know to what extent you feel that it's their fault, partly his fault and so on, because whatever is happening, it's not happening in the way I'm sure that he or, or they or you want. So what, what do you do about it? Well, firstly, Todd, Todd Blackadder is a, is a great guy, proven as a player, you know, significant experience now as a coach. I think the, the evolution of the game, whether, you know, you talk about law changes and talk about the way players are changing, in my view, the way you motivate players and buy into a proposition of a game plan or a club or an organisation is changing every six months. You know, the loyalty factor, players, they certainly know their market values now. <laughs> players who stay at a club for a, you know, a 10-year period, I think we're seeing is less and less. And I think it's become more of a job now for a director of rugby to culturally get the environment right for the teams to have no excuses. I mean, whether that's facilities or you can't use that as an excuse at Bath, it's getting a way of working or approach, we talk about process or systems, that is consistent with a coaching team. Now, we talk about the team on the pitch, but for me, the most important thing is getting a set of coaches and there are a number of coaches at all these clubs now, kicking coach, scores coach, skills coach, coach, tack coach, and having a clear picture on the roles and responsibilities and agreeing how the team of coaches are going to coach the team. Now, my view at Bath is, you know, the Bath has come out with a vision that Toby Booth, Baron Edwards are leaving. Todd's got another year. What does that mean? Stuart Hooper's taking over. Okay, so there's going to be more changes. And I just, I, I don't know if the players really know who to look to to get some guidance and understand the framework. And a good example is that saying, well, I didn't know the laws. I mean, that, as a player, through uncertainty, you've still got to execute and do your day job. And I just don't feel at the moment there's a leadership in that Bath team to be able to close games out. Because, you know, with those points... Uh, difference they had coming into that second half. They should have killed that game off. Let's just remind everyone they were 19-3 up at half-time and they didn't score anything in the second half. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's a good example of not having the leadership, thought leadership, say, okay, what do we need to do in this game, strategy-wise, to get into their 22? Uh, I don't know. I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a very tough job now being a director of rugby, but the succession planning of these clubs, the ones who've got it right, you look back to Saracens, you look back to Exeter. They're the coaches they trust. The coaches trust the players. You know, it's a two-way thing. They trust the owner. Um, the owner's given context, financially keeping it stable. Um, and the clubs that are struggling, there seems to be a real misalignment on the overall kind of objective or the legacy or the history of how a club has played you know, I was always very clear when I joined Bath in 95 that Bath is an entrepreneurial kind of risk-taking side, but they were very direct in their approach. Real strong, solid set piece. You wouldn't mess with the senior players. You, you know, you had to earn the right. You had to be 150% committed or you'd be sent back at the A46. They're the kind of sort of cultural ways of working or a framework that you were kind of born into. And you either, you either bought into those or you, or you were off. So... You know, it's a number of things there, but I think that there has to be an alignment on what the coaches are trying to achieve firstly to then transfer or cascade that thinking to the players. Well, Piers, um, 
being an ex-Worcester player and also having turned over Bath, I think once up at six ways, it's not always easy to go up to six ways and uh, go play a very passionate warrior side. And, and, you know, the pressure was certainly on Worcester to get that result because of where they are in the, um, in the log. And is this not more of a sign of the competitiveness of this year's premiership where, you know, every team is a difficult, a difficult opposition to play? Yeah, completely. I mean, we we haven't seen a league like this before, have we? The, you know, the, the number of points difference between you know fourth to twelve. Well, Matt, just let, just let me butt in and say between Quinns in third on thirty three and mm. the Warriors on twenty, with twelve points separate third to eleventh. I mean, it's, mm. it's extraordinary. It, it is extraordinary. Even even if you look at the Falcons down at the bottom at seventeen points, you know we we just come over. Off, you know, normally at this stage of the season, the bottom side is languishing just around 10, 11 points, not even breaking that uh, that ten points, and already up to seventeen points. It's such a congested league at the moment. Yeah, it is, and it, but it, you know it comes down to the basics. It comes there's you can't get away from the fact that you look your teammate in the eyes before and after a game. And you're 100% committed to agree that, you know, whether the game plan is to keep the ball, you have to keep the ball now. And, and what Worcester did in that second second half was they kept the ball. And they kind of, they they didn't look, their heads never went down. They were always, you know, always looking as though they'd be, be in the game. Straight from that, that, that second half whistle went. So they also went at half time. They looked back, said, okay, you know, reviewed the first half, didn't go so well. And then they came out and just agreed as 15 players, whoever was on the park at the time, that they could do this. And they did. And, and, and that's why the league is, you know, the difference in the talent in, in the premiership with any of those individual players is very small. But it's the dynamic and the teamwork and the leadership for um, the key players who are, who are leading the team to say, we can get back into this and this is how we're going to do it. Because there's a massive how. Now with so much data analysis, you know, predictability, if you if you play in the right areas and you've you know you've done your analysis on the ref and how he likes to go about uh, his ways etc., you know you're going you're going to get back in games and 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 so it was almost it was one a game of two halves. What happened at the end there was just unbelievable. Matt, we've got to leave it there, but thank you uh, once again. I always like talking to you because your perspective is insightful and uh, practical. Thank you very much. Cheers, Brian. Take care. Cheers, Venus. I meant it. When we speak to Matt, he has a a point of view that's got a clarity about it. I just I wonder why he isn't doing anything in coaching. Maybe well, he didn't want to. I think we all understand the pressures directors of rugby coaches are under to perform at this level. And you know, Matt is a is, is a very passionate Bath supporter, and yeah. every time he speaks about Bath, you know, he lives and breathes Bath, and and it's it's very close to his heart, and it's great to see that passion still in some of those ex-players. Well, let's talk about another director of rugby who's been in the headlines recently, Steve Diamond at Sale. It wasn't so long ago, Sale were bottom of the league. Now, I didn't think they would stay there because I, I knew that they've got too much talent. Some of that is now playing well. It's uh, been a while because they've had to wait for people to get over bands and silly things like that. But when you turn over the champion Saracens and do it in a style where it wasn't lucky, it says something about the things you are doing. And I, and I did a piece for the Telegraph this week about it. You know, whatever you think about Diamond, Sale are operating in a, in a, a strange part of the world where, where three of the biggest football clubs in the world 
Liverpool and two Manchester teams aren't that far away. There are a host of other football league teams and Premier League teams, and they have to scrap quite hard just for any you know any talent at all. They don't spend anywhere near what other clubs do, and yet players like Fafta Clerk have signed long-term contracts. So Diamond, for all his faults, must be doing something right. Well, he's clearly, Pezza talked about the culture and buying into the culture and aligning players and directors of rugby and coaches in, in the same direction. He clearly gets the best out of his players. The fact that Faf de Klerk, Ruan Janssen van Rijnsburg, they're talking about the De Priya brothers, and then the host of English players, Chris Ashton has been playing really well for, for sale. And, and it's not just with this weekend, last, the, the previous Premiership weekend, they went down to Kingsholm, down to Gloucester, which was high on confidence, and they totally outplayed them. So it is developing. They certainly got something right. Yes, I think Steve Diamond is a very fiery character, but he gets through his ma- management. He's, he's getting at this stage, he's getting the most of his players. Is that sustainable over a long period of time? That's the question that needs to be asked. But for this team, for these players, he's getting the best out of them and they're turning and they're getting the results to beat Saracens. Is, is no mean feat and you know especially I, 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 at home I wrote, look you can't you can't out spirit a club which has made spirit one of its touchstones over the years by doing it in a fake sort of way and if you want to call Steve Diamond uh, emotional sometimes irrational sometimes contentious cantankerous of course he is he's a hooker Oh, because I've never met one that wasn't a thoroughly objectionable <laughs> git at some point at least in their incarnation I don't include myself in that, obviously, but there you go. Look, Quinns, uh, one of the things that Quinns had always done, even though they scored a lot of points, they were always conceding. last five years, they were always near the bottom in terms of the amount of points that they lead. Now, this year, they are third in terms of the number of points they've scored and only fifth in the points conceded. Now, Gustard, who came in to do their... uh, well, basically the director of rugby role, but also the defensive stuff, has obviously taken time to, to have an effect. But that, you know, is he, obviously just starting to work. And they've been, as I say, involved in a league which is, you haven't seen in a league like this before. And they are still below there, but they're going in the right direction, I think. They certainly are. They, um, you know, being third at this stage of the season says a lot for what he has done in a relatively short amount of time. He's come in uh, at the beginning of the season and like any change, it takes a bit of time to, um, to adjust the, you know, his philosophy, the way he wants to play, building those relationships, those trust relationships with his players, the combinations. You, know, you look at his success he had at Saracens and then at England, it's, it's built on that defensive attitude that he brings he, he brings his structures but he also brings that really hard-nosed attitude and, and offense is a lot about offenses about that let attitude me, let me just ask you this because this was the, the probably the, the well not probably definitely the biggest change between the time when i played rugby and the time you played and now the defensive system features that we had were virtually non-existent it you know and they started to develop and they've got much more sophisticated but you've been involved in, in, in several uh, incarnations of this. How long does it take to really bed a defensive system in properly? Properly, 
I don't think too long. It does, but it's it's got to be repetitive, and it's a, it's it's easier to coach the fence than it is to to work on the attacking skills. Yeah, you know, just re- referring back to my playing career at Worcester Warriors, we were, as I mentioned earlier, we were in that that relegations, and we were under a lot of pressure. We brought in Phil Larder, and Phil, in a very short period of time, turned us around. And yes, we were still not the most attacking side in the league. But we stopped conceding. We stopped leaking easy tries and, and getting that attitude correct for us. And that saved us. That kept us up. When I was at Gloucester, Dave Ellis was our, was our defensive coach. I think at that stage, it was only really Sean Edwards at Wasps and Dave Ellis at, at Gloucester that were the defensive specific coaches. And it made a huge, huge difference to the team. They don't get as much time as the attacking coaches to work with the team. But um, they certainly make a massive, massive impact. And you could see with, with, with Harlequins, is it's now coming to the, to the fore. It's not even halfway through the season, well, about halfway through the season. And you can now see the effects of that offensive attitude that's been brought in. Well, let's look at um, the Tigers 34-16 winners over Gloucester and Wasps 27-16 over Saints. This just begs this question, which... Was raised by uh, Ben Ryan uh, here last week. He said, "Is it the case that this is inconsistency from the teams, or just a reflection of the very competitive nature of the Premiership?" And I, I must admit, I'm not entirely sure which it is. No, I think it's it's the very competitive nature of of this tournament this year. Um, right, a home team in this league. I found when I when I moved over from 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 the Southern Hemisphere you will get an advantage. Uh, the players are more fired up. You, you, they, they draw the energy from the, from the local crowd. You would go play that exact team the following week and you play them away and the players are different. And, uh, you know, that's, a lot of it is about the mental application and how you can, how you can uh, sort of get yourself fired up again. But this, I don't think people outside of the premiership really understands the intensity of this tournament. There's there's nothing compared to to the Premiership anywhere in the world anywhere in the world. Super Rugby is intense, it's fast, but it's not the same as the Premiership. Week in, week out, and then you've got to balance it with Europe. You know the European competitions coming in. It's it's massively demanding, and it's it's intense, it's physical, and the squads available to coaches are not as big as in the Super Rugby. It's not as big in the Pro 14 or in the Top 14. It's a finite squad and they have to manage that. Suddenly you get four, five, six in injuries to key players and that changes the whole dynamic of your squad. And that's that's one of the, the big challenges directors of rugby and coaches have over here is, is the size of the squad and the management of those players. Once you get a string of injuries, it is very difficult then to keep performing at that level. Before we go on to talk about uh, the Pro 14, very quickly, let's just mention next uh, four team Bristol 9. 24 scrums in this game. Now, <laughs> you would have loved that. Well, not well. Uh, tell you what, though, on a serious point, when scrums are taking nearly a minute and a half, 24, that's nearly, well, it's well over a third of the game, watching people probably not complete scrums. Not good enough. No, it's not good enough. Uh, I mean, being a wing and a fullback, you get very cold. If, uh, if well, you're this, doing nothing. You're literally doing nothing. You no, know, you're not. You're just standing there waiting for the ball to come out. Yeah. I think the the laws has changed and this is now sort of becoming the exception 
to the rule. We don't want to see 24 scrums um, at all and resets and scrum again. But luckily, it's not it's not a regular occurrence in the 24 game. 24 scrums wouldn't be a problem if they were over in 30 seconds and the ball came out. Yeah. But anyway, there you go. Last year, well, the Kings had a hard time, obviously, in uh, the Pro 14. But this year, both them and the Chiefs have had a hard time now. We were discussing earlier about this. Why is that in particular? I think there's several factors. Um, you know, it's it's the two weaker regions in South Africa. If you look at the six regions that competed in Super Rugby before, so they they are the weaker region, regions. Economically, they're not as strong as as the others. You've got Bloemfontein, which is and Port Elizabeth, which which aren't really industrial or you know financial um, strong points in economic strong points in South Africa. But what what also, you know, is is troubling to these sides is the amount of turnover they have every year in terms of players. The Cheetahs for forever, I can remember, they would develop young players. They've got a really good development platform, a really good Craven Week side at school level, university level. But then financially, they just cannot hold on uh, to their top players and they, they all move on. You look well, at you it. say that 20 of them went out. 20 players of the Kings squad from last season um, is out and they, they had to bring in 13 new players. Now, that is, that is a massive amount of turnover. And the same, you know, the same with, uh, with the Cheetahs. I was speaking to Franco Smith earlier in this year and he had to go find and source players at club level in South Africa just to be able to form a team, to be able to play in the Pro 14. That is their biggest challenge. It's about the retention. Economically, it's, it's about retention, re- retaining their players, not losing them to, um, you know, to Pro 14 sides, to Premiership sides, to Top 14 Italian sides. You look at the number of South African players playing over here, well, it's ridiculous. Point that, I mean, we've always said, you know, you total it up. At one point, I don't know what the total is now, but it was 380. Uh, South African registered or born players who were playing elsewhere, and you, you know, highlighted the point to me that the top four scrum halves in South Africa, none of them are playing there. No, they're all playing over here. You got, you know, our three best. In my, in my opinion, our three best scrum halves are playing in the Premiership. You got Faf de Klerk, Franco Hoogart, and Kubus Reinach. You've got Piet van Sel playing top fourteen rugby and, and Stad Francais, who is also a, a young Springbok uh, number nine. So you get Faf de Klerk starting, but then. You know the guys that are down. Uh, the next options are, you know, playing Super Rugby, and they they not even they wouldn't be playing there if these guys were playing back in South Africa. But that is the economic challenge South African rugby has. Um, as long as the exchange rate is favourable for uh, for the euro, for for the yen, for the pound, that is going oh, to well, be. Oh, don't worry, because Brexit's coming soon, and it might even up a lot actually. <laughs> well, hopefully, we'll get some South Africans back in South Africa. Uh, yeah. Well, well, again, I go back to the fact that the Pro 14. Hasn't for quite a long time had uh, promotion and relegation, and yet you've got sides that, well, just let's look at this. Leinster, Edinburgh, that's the top two in Conference B. Munster, Glasgow, top two in Conference A. I would defy many people to say that they are not good squads, they're not developing talent themselves, they're not playing the right part in the career development of the Indigenous qualified players and therefore helping not just their own regions but their uh, own national squads. No, certainly do. You know, I was up at the Edinburgh Kings game uh, on Saturday and um, they had a, a young player there, 
getting an op- opportunity, first start, 19 years old, 20 years old, coming off the bench um, and starting against the Kings. But this is where the difference is between the Premiership and the Pro 14. You do have your sides like your Kings, potentially Zebra, that you have the opportunity to give these young players an opportunity. Come, uh, come the end of the month, Edinburgh has got to go out to South Africa, play the Kings again, and they will be, they'll be without any of the you know, Six Nations starters. So this is where those, op- those players get the opportunity to get exposure at a higher level. Come November, the Pro 14 is still running. They got to go tour to South Africa. This is a great learning experience platform for these guys to tour away, get to know uh, South African conditions and, and get some experience that way. So it's a much better environment to develop some of your local talent. And this is another reason why the comparisons and the lessons supposedly from football are completely irrelevant when it comes to rugby. You do not get in football whole periods of the season where say half of the squads of Manchester City, Manchester United, Liverpool are simply absent and but they are playing Premier League games. That doesn't happen. They are all away on international breaks, but there's no domestic programme. So it's completely different. It is it is completely it's a totally different model. Um you know, just looking at those that Edinburgh squad that was playing over the weekend you know, they were they were bench players starting and they were squad players. They were some of those players who hasn't played any rugby since September. So it was that opportunity to give these guys an opportunity. And they could rest their Scottish players. Their Scottish internationals was, was having a rest. Um, it's Europe coming up, you know, quite intense two weeks of Europe coming up and then it's Six Nations. So that's where that management of your international players, your, your Irish internationals is so crucial so that come the Six Nations, they won't be fatigued and they can perform at a high level. You think Leinster are not nailed on for a European title, but they are probably the team to beat on this still? No, they still they still are. I think you would, um, you would certainly back them to get a double Pro 14 uh, and again in Europe. You know, Ireland are flying high. You know, a lot of it is about confidence. Uh, and these these players and teams are relishing that confidence and that positive feel in the teams. I'm completely aware that last week we did not include in our review of 2018 a review of the women's game, and that was because there were no fixtures last week, and we did not have the expertise of Kate Rowan, the Telegraph rugby reporter who focuses on the women's game, but we do today. Hi, Kate. Hi, Brian. Before we go into the 2018 review, can you just enlighten everybody as to the 28 professional contracts the RFU have given out? Because uh, there's always the question of what is it to do with a 15-a-side game, a 7-a-side game, elite player squad agreements and, and so on. It, it doesn't make as much, it's not as clear to many people as, uh, as it probably is to you or I. Okay, so the 28 professional contracts People tend to like how much things are worth, so I'll start with that. Are believed to be worth from twenty-three thousand to twenty-eight thousand at the top level for your big name experienced players with some match fees on top, which would cover tournaments or series rather than just per match. And these have been a long time coming. There had there had previously been contracts which were controversially not renewed after the 2017 Women's Rugby World Cup. And we went big on it as a story, as did it, it became very big 
again, we the Telegraph broke in May that the, the contracts were being reintroduced, which was seen as a big U-turn because the RFU had said in 2017 they were going to focus on sevens with the Tokyo Olympics and the Commonwealth Games last year. And then they'd go back to the 15s. But there had been so a, lot, a lot of media interest. And then yes, the players worked very closely with the RPA. And um, I suppose also the success of the Tyrrell's Premier 15s, a deal was struck. And there was also a sense that other nations, France and New Zealand, were doing more to become more professional. And England didn't want to be left behind although there have been the well-documented uh, financial um, difficulties in the RFU, they decided to ring fence money. And it was the now former CEO, uh, Steve Brown, announced that these contracts would be an offer. And there's 28 of them, like I said, ranging from 23,000 to 28,000. And then there's seven more EPS. So they're basically, you call them part-time contracts. They're people that just come in during camp, during kind of like the Six Nations kind of type time. They're not there for the contact days the rest of the time. They will still very much need to have jobs. A good example of that, of someone who decided to pick, to kind of focus on her career, um, is Amy Kikane, the brilliant hooker. She um, is on an EPS agreement because she's completed RAF officer training so she can progress her military career. While uh, while still playing for England, so that's one example of a player on that. So um, there's, no, there's there's no differentiation now between fifteens and sevens. There is, so they're they're doing a lot more, Brian. I suppose what what they've done with the men, they've they've they have two distinct groups, so you don't okay. have players going between the two. They had said there might be an exceptional circumstances, but Emily Scarrett, Natasha Hunt, and Jeff Breach have all decided to move over to 15s and that is that and the 7 squad I think it was Amy Wilson Hardy was brought in as a reinforcement for the 7 squad and the 7 squad which is full of a lot of young players stays at, stays as is and they're trying to kind of operate on the model for the men because the women's 7s haven't been haven't been particularly successful considering the resources they have I mean they got a bronze in the Commonwealth Games but then were knocked out in the last 16 of the World Cup and have a bit of a struggle to for automatic Olympic qualification on behalf of Team GB, whereas the men have done quite well. So they're they're trying to separate the programs to mirror that, I suppose. So 2018 in review, the Six Nations belong to the Grand Slam winning uh, team France. I've noticed in France not only that it seems to be gaining profile, but they seem to be gaining quite rapidly decent crowds as well. Oh, it's amazing. So, um, I don't know, have you ever been to a women's rugby match in France, Brian? Not in France, no. I've been to lots and lots over here. I've been mean, including lots of World Cup finals as well, actually. But, but you, you, should, you should go to one in France because it's an experience. Mm-hmm. It was a record crowd. I was there in Grenoble in March. Um, it, was a set, it was the second last round, the fourth round. You had a crowd of over 17,000. It was a record for a women's, world record for a women's rugby match. Um, it was a Stade Alp almost fully full and it felt like a test match so you know sometimes when you go to the the women's rugby matches they, they'd be good and you can get a good standard of rugby but there wouldn't be a particularly special atmosphere if you're if there's you know five thousand people rattling around twickenham after a men's game or you've got two thousand in the stoop this is proper that special test match atmosphere and it was a brilliant game and france won it in the last minute and the reason 
the reason the French, because I, I keep asking why, they they really embraced when they hosted the World Cup in 2014. But more than that, what they what they have done is they've tendered out. The RFU have actually started to do this now. They've tendered out the hosting of women's and under 26 nations games to cities. And it's seen as a really big honour to host it. And when you talk to people and you ask the locals, you know, why are you at this game? They go, I'm just here for the rugby to see France. And you go, do you care that it's women? And they genuinely don't. And a lot of the, and it's a very mixed crowd. And it's not really about women's rugby. It's just about rugby. Well, one of the, thing, one of the things I've, that has been true in, in France's history and this goes to both people. This goes back to the revolution. Their civic pride in what they do, yeah. in terms of their little town, their little yeah. you know, city, or, or, or yeah. even villages, is a huge thing, and it's much more important to them yeah. than their individual stuff. So I understand why it's working there. Uh, let's yeah. look at the Tyrrell Premier Fifteens. It's been a, a, a success. The way in which it's increasing the quality of rugby and um, the crowds. It's taking time, but we always knew it would be. Saracens, funnily enough, are starting to do a little bit what the men are doing, but it's a bit wider than that with clubs like Loughborough, Quinns now uh, doing very well as well. Can you see uh, a situation where the clubs that have struggled, you know, the Worcesters and, and, and so on, get to an even, a relatively even keel so you get proper competition in that uh, league? It's, it's, it's a funny old league and in a weird way, it's a, it's, it's a lot more extreme, but it's slightly, it slightly um, mirrors the Gallagher Premiership in that you have the haves at the top, the have-nots at the bottom and a group in the middle, except for it's a, the results that get put on the have-nots are a lot more extreme. I think you, you want to look at the model of women's football as well, just as, I don't, I don't know, maybe I'm loud on, on a rugby podcast, but, you know, still getting, you know, Arsenal women putting 7-0 on people in the Women's Super League. And I think this is a big, big problem for for um, domestic women's sport. It's a disparity in clubs. And Worcester, they had an exodus of, of players when the Premier 15 started in the 2017-18 season. They've got Lydia Thompson, now the wing, but you can't build a team around one player. You would hope, I mean, Loughborough, Loughborough finished fifth last season and then had had their big line with nine game unbeaten season. That would attract a lot of players. So you would hope it would become like Quinns were kind of the one that kind of were doing the most in terms of uh, PR with the men and in terms of um, they share analysis equipment with the men and now Bristol are starting to do more that they're doing quite well. And I think... I think really the way to go is is to have is to have 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 buy in from the the men's clubs and have double headers when possible is 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 another one way of growing it a bit. Kate, tell you what, we've got to leave it there because we're going to speak to someone who fits the Loughborough Lightning mould and she's got a contract uh, as well. So, can I thank you very much for your input and uh, please come back very shortly to uh, tell us about this uh, 2019. Okay, thank you. Thank you, that's Kate Rowan. Now, time to speak to a Loughborough Lightning player. It's Emily Scarrett. Hello, Emily. Hi, Brian. How are you? Okay. Well, you've got one one of the 28 contracts. You've decided to come back to the 15s game. What was involved in that decision? It was a really, really tough one. Obviously, I've loved my time with Sevens and it's kind of 
given me some amazing opportunities going to the Olympics, the Commonwealth Games, all that sort of stuff. But obviously, nice this places is, in the seventies, yeah, well exactly. done. It's sunny. I know, yeah. <laughs> very sunny, very sunny. But this is obviously the first time that the fifteens game has been kind of been professional in terms of that. So it was the first real opportunity we've had to to make a, a direct decision across the two games. And I suppose for me, like I've I've always loved both codes, but I suppose I've always grown up playing fifteens and. As I'm getting older, sevens is very much a, a young person's game and a fast person's game. So, yeah, just really excited to get back out of there. It should be good. So, uh, we've got a situation in World Rugby where the women in New Zealand, you know, have been put on, you know, a reasonable professional footing. I think France as well. Do you know how many others are likely to follow suit? So, when you get to the next World Cup, you, how many do you reckon might be in a similar situation? How many countries? Yeah, I, d- I don't know, to be honest, and I'm not completely sure of the, the situations in New Zealand and France, but they're certainly getting on their way to becoming professional, if not professional. So yeah. that's really exciting for the game. But I think what, obviously, by us becoming professional, what that does then, it it almost, not scares, but it, it, it makes people aware that actually we're going to be in a position where we're able to train together every day or as much as possible. And, and our players are now having kind of access and opportunities to so many um, great things in terms of recovery and all that sort of stuff. So actually, if you're looking from the rest of the world and you want to be competing at the top and, um, you know, you're looking at obviously the finalists from the last World Cup as in New Zealand and you want to be up there or, or beating it, then you've got to look at your own programmes and, and maybe think that that's the way to go. So hopefully that will be awesome for the women's game if other nations do do that and it's only going to make it more competitive and it's only going to drive kind of the standards of, of the players in the game. So for the first time in quite a long time, you can say that the RFU actually and the women's game in England are leading the way. Yeah, they are. It's been it's awesome. I think, you know, 28 contracts is a huge amount and you think of the investment that that obviously is requiring is is awesome and I think it's it's been a, a long time coming and it's taken a long you know it's been a long process and certainly these things don't happen overnight so yeah you know those guys that are involved in it are extremely grateful and you know now we're just looking forward to kind of putting our heads down Six Nations is just around the corner and actually kind of getting going with it. So the sites are firmly set and it really should have been set even if you, you weren't uh, fully professional but uh Winning Grand Slams and World Cups now must be, you know, not not the minimum acceptable, but certainly what you are um, aiming for. Yeah, of course. I think, you know, we've been been very lucky in um, the England women's game that, you know, we've always been up there and we've always been in, incredibly competitive. So I think, you know, the in terms of what we're aiming for, that definitely hasn't changed. But um, yeah, I think there's there's naturally now going to be a, a greater expectation on us. You, Somebody, if it's your job to to play rugby compared to somebody who, you know, is essentially still doing it at an amateur level, then obviously there's there's going to be expectation and people are going to, you know, start thinking that or expecting a lot of from us. So yeah, we've got to make sure that we live up to that. But you know, we're very new in the process. It only came in January the first, so it's going to take a bit of time to settle in and, and players get used to that full time regime. Um, but yeah, hopefully in the long term, come the next World Cup 2021, then yeah, hopefully we'll be in a really good place. It will take time, but you've got to start somewhere. Emily Scarrett, the best of luck to you in 2019 and all your now pro teammates. Thank you very much. Cheers, Ryan. Tina, just as a final comment on that, in a way, the RFU are leading the way. And people will say, well, you're the richest union and so on. But bearing in mind there have been difficulties financially for them. Actually, people don't like to give governing bodies credit, but I would like on this occasion to say the investment in the women's game, even at a time when they're under some financial strictures, is one I think is 
is worth taking. The, the money isn't small, but neither is it absolutely huge either when you're talking about other aspects of the game. And the sooner they get this started to drag women's rugby up, the sooner they'll get a return. Because at some point, the, the women's game itself will become financing and will become a net contributor, not only internationally, but at club level as well. No, it certainly will. And you, you've got to start somewhere. And it's it's very positive for these 28 players um, that they've now got access to wider resources in terms of their personal development, but also have the time available. So you, yeah, if, you, if you're a semi-professional or an amateur player and, and you have to fill your day you know, with your normal job and then try and go before work or after work, try and develop yourself and get better, it puts a lot of pressure on you. These these players now have got... That's ac- what it always used to be like. To you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it certainly was. But And, and, and we, yeah. you know, we went through it and, yeah. and, and you could see, you could see the difference professionalism has brought uh, to the to the men's game and yeah. it's it's a small start but it's it's a start in the right direction i think the you know the, the biggest challenge is that the divide being created between those clubs now with uh, the majority of these professional players and the remaining clubs in the league um, has got to be managed whether they um, should be a salary cap potentially put in to make sure that these talent gets distributed to the local clubs. They should be that that you know so that everyone is on a, on a more competitive foot. Um, looking at the world game, the wider world game is you know you have your France, you have your New Zealand, and you have your England access to professional players and the access to that finances. What happens to the rest of the rugby playing female world? Well, I'll tell world? you what the women's game needs to do fairly quickly is the biggest hurdle at the moment is when you leave mixed rugby as an 11-year-old, it's not safe to play anymore. You've got to go and play all-girl rugby. There are not enough teams at the higher age levels to either join that are near you, and even if you can join one, that are near enough to another one to actually have a meaningful fix to your list. The day or the year that girls' rugby can cater for under 12s, 13s, 14s, 15s, all the way through, there will be an explosion in women's rugby, the like of which well didn't hasn't happened for since its inception, and it will kick on. And I would just like, as part of the Premier 15s program, to say to those clubs, we want you to run age group teams at all these years and at least play each other, so that at least someone in your area knows where they can go and they can at least get twelve games a year. Or at that age group, and and also align with uh, you know the the, the men's uh, premiership teams in those regions. I mean, uh, l- looking at the the geograph- geography of of where the teams are, you know the the Loughborough Lightning could they could they tie into Leicester and 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 some of the the, the male professional game. I think there's a lot a bit of piggybacking that's that's going to have have to happen if we want to accelerate the development of the women's game. Uh, my son is under nine. They've just for his little local club, he's just making, starting to tackle. Um, and in the opposition teams, there's always a girl or two that is, that is in there and they are passionate about yeah. the game and they're going full out and sometimes it's it's the best player in the team. So it's about creating those opportunities for for those young girl players yeah. to, to be able to progress. And yeah. that will come at the top end. It's got to be, you've you got to strive for something. There's got to be an end goal. Yes, now there is 
there's an opportunity to be a professionally play, professional player for England. How great is that for a young English girl to say, I want to play for my country and I can get an opportunity to get paid for it. And that, and that will cascade out at the lower levels once that is, is a burgeoning um, competition that's happening. Well, that's all we have time for this week on Brownmore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. Thank you to my co-host, Tidus Delport, and my producer, as always, Abby Patterson. Please do subscribe to the podcast and leave a review if you haven't already. But for now, it's goodbye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.